0: We are Encountering Silence.
1: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
0: Here on Encountering Silence, we have explored silence in many forms. Silent prayer, the silence of meditation and contemplation, the silence of the wilderness and the desert, the relationship between silence and creativity, or silence and politics. But there is one topic that we have not yet explored, at least not in any detail. And that is how silence shapes and informs one of the great mysteries of life, the mystery of death. With this in mind today, I am pleased to be welcoming to the podcast, harpist, singer, and composer, Therese Schroeder Schieker. You may know her from one of her beautiful and award-winning recordings, such as the Queen's minstrel, Rosa Mystica, or the geography of the soul. Or you may be familiar with her many articles or her books, such as Transitus, A Blessed Death in the Modern World. As the title of that book suggests, her work has a contemplative dimension that explores how music can be a gift to those who are dying or in hospice or palliative care with over 40 years of clinical experience, serving the physical and spiritual needs of the dying with prescriptive music. Therese founded the Palliative Medical Modality of Music Thanatology and the Chalice of Repose Project, the first music thanatology organization in the world. She has served as the academic dean of the School of Music Thanatology Since 1992. Therese, welcome to Encountering Silence.
3: Oh, good morning, Carl. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Good morning, Cassidy. And good morning, Kevin.
2: Good morning.
0: Good morning. Now, maybe it seems ironic or counterintuitive to ask a musician to speak about silence but we've had several musicians on the podcast and we've always been fascinated by their insights into the relationship between silence and music. So to begin our conversation, I'm just curious about your perspective. How does silence contribute to or form or shape your experience as a musician?
3: Oh, thank you, Carl. You, you go- right to the heart of the matter (laughs) as soon as you walk in the room. Gosh. All right. Um,
0: Take your time.
3: If I could say, uh, if you would allow me to describe two different perspectives, please. Um, One of them has to do with silence and musical artistry as a composer and performer. And another one has to do with silence and the life of the musician clinician. They're, they're actually um, different, though related. So I'm going to defer to a few memories and thoughts for a moment. Um, when I was a young very young woman, I had the great privilege and opportunity to study with the American composer Norman Lockwood. Uh, That was in Denver. He was an absolutely remarkable teacher. I used to come to his house every week, and I had to show up with some effort of a string quartet or whatever it was I was working on and um, he was a very dignified teacher. And I handed him that week's scores, and he was looking at it really quietly and said to me with all the care in the world, Therese, what is it you listen to during your time alone? And then he took a little breath and said something like, Be careful what you listen to, because everything you take in stays in. It matters. Mm -hmm. It's going to shape and form you. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And then I realized he was giving a principal teaching about um, the inappropriateness, at least for me, of having something like background music. Sometimes people come home from work at night and walk in the door and press a button and turn on what they call music, but it essentially becomes background, uh, kind of oral ambient background material. And we're not really present to it. And we might even have music on while we're having a conversation with our loved ones our children our best friends our family but but we wouldn't dream of speaking uh, of having several conversations going on at once so so there's that thing i learned very early on that that music is a primary conversation not a background kind of auditory affection, wallpaper stuff. And so my teacher, Norman Lockwood, was saying, if you're serious about composing, uh, protect and nurture periods of silence. And in my own soul, uh, as a Catholic, I, I began to realize, well, um, in the same way, In a much earlier period, I'm an elder now, so when I was a child, we fasted in preparation for the Holy Eucharist. But I realized right then, Norman Lockwood was trying to teach me about fasting from sound. Uh, Mm. That sort of helped cleanse both my inner life and the sensoria.
2: Mm.
3: And that set the stage for the possibility of being able to hear something new as a composer or as a performing artist. So that's one world over there. Then there's another world when you're working in the heart of the medical setting, whether you're working in a major hospital, in a residential hospice, or whether you're in the home of someone who's actively dying at home. The delivery of music is not isolated as some mere technique that you deliver and then leave. It's founded in the whole contemplative dimension of which preparatory silence is, is the soul of the work. And then the rest of the work has to do with being present to the one who's actively dying Mm. so that you can mirror something about their breathing patterns and their respiratory cycles back to them in an audible way. So you're connecting with them rather than pushing buttons or doing a technological delivery of medicine. You're walking with them, accompanying them, breathing with them in sound and in silence. So those are two different approaches, the life of the composer and the performing artist and the life of the musician-clinician working in end-of-life situations, so that's the field of music thanatology. But in each of those, silence becomes a kind of condition of being that determines everything about dimension and truth and beauty and goodness that may happen or would be prevented. So does that help us? get in that room.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys, yeah, but, but I, I am in quite a almost meditative state and thinking about this. And mm. you, you answered a question for us about what is uh, music thanatology. And I wonder if you might kind of unpack that in a way for our listeners um, just a little more closely about, about what, music thanatology is?
3: Well, if we have 10 hours, we can go there. Let me think for a moment. To, um, music thanatology is a contemplative praxis with clinical applications. It's not a clinical practice with contemplative residue. And so How we are in our innermost being contributes greatly. Shapes, forms, colors. How we are able to be present to others rather than distracted. If your mother would be dying, Cassidy, if you If I would receive a clinical referral to come to either your home or the hospital to be with your mother as she's dying, the role of the music thanatologist is to deliver live music there at the bedside with harp and voice. But the music we might play for your mother Now, forgive me, I'm making something up right now. The music we might play for someone who's dying with Mm -hmm. lung cancer might be different for the music we deliver for five other people who are also dying of cancer. So it's unique, dynamic, and has to be delivered live. So the musician-clinician is working right there at the bedside and they're addressing both physiological pain and interior suffering so it's not a word therapy
1: Mm -hmm. but it
3: is but with careful partnering accompanying synchronization Of breathing and respiratory patterns, I can be with the person at multiple levels of their being to the degree that my own life is not distracted or noisy or, yeah, distracted or noisy. So, so the contemplative dimension of music thanatology is the bedrock upon which we work. And, um, the dying will always be with us. So I'm pleased to say that we work in every kind of psychosocial setting, hospitals, hospices, homes, uh, long-term care facilities, wherever people are dying, music thanatologists come. But we understand that the spirituality of the work is um, core to the work. So it requires, it's a sort of a marriage between um, the musical artistry, the clinical acuity, the spirituality of making a commitment to be there for those who are vulnerable. I'm sure I've missed a hundred things I should have said, (laughs) but that hopefully
1: could start you off a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Thank you.
2: It seems to me that your answer to Carl and now your answer to Cassidy really is a deeply embodied answer.
3: Oh, uh, thank you. Oh, thank you, Kevin. I love you, Kevin. Thank you.
2: And, well, you're welcome, but I, I haven't gotten to my question yet. <laughs> but We love Kevin, too. Um, my th- my, I think what I want, is there a way to bridge those two questions? Because you say... Especially when you just said to me, and it struck me hard, you said, you approach, you know, music thanatology approaches uh, those who are dying no matter where they are, hospital or hospice or at home. And I thought to myself, well, I'm dying. Everything alive is dying. And so that first question, you know, there's active dying, which you're closer to the end, Um But I honestly don't know if I'm closer to the end or not if, you know, God forbid, an accident or something happens today. So to me, I could be near the end and I don't know it. So I'm thinking about your first answer where your teacher said to you, be careful what you listen to. And there was this deep embodied kind of, I think monastics might even think about like custody of the eyes, custody of the ears. There's this practice of being quiet and open so that you can hear the voice. And I'm just wondering, is there something in between those two of active death and that first kind of quiet custody, ear and eyes, this embodied knowing that, and I'm not even sure what question I have here, but it just seems like there's something deeply embodied here that I wish, if you have any comment on.
3: I hope that I may reply within the arc of my own experience and biography.
2: Mm. Please.
3: Yeah, I am a Eucharistic person. And so the notion, my understanding of a spirituality is always looking for Incarnational spirituality, mm. embodiment, um, it, down to the degree that we even teach a course uh, in music embodiment. So, for instance, if you just think abstractly right now for a moment, if you think... Mm. Um, Kevin, if you played French horn and you were in the orchestra tonight and you're playing Mahler, Mm. you're going to have the score with you in front of you. Mm. So you're reading notes. You're working with a conductor and you're working with the 112 members of the great symphony orchestra. So your technique is embodied, but you're actually reading the score, mm. and following instructions. Mm. Um, in the praxis of music thanatology, no one's ever reading a score. We go into the room without any scores.
2: Mm.
3: It's sort of this Tom Bergian reference to revelation presupposes inner emptiness. We we have to be willing to carve out this metanoic and canonic inner space in which I, I come to you or your dying mother or your child without preconceived notions of how that cancer is going to unfold or how you are going to be. And I have to Rid myself of those preconceived notions but know what I know about clinical care but meet you in a fresh, new way. Mm. Begin in complete and total silence. Begin breathing with you only in silence. And only after I've synchronized with you can I begin to play with my eyes on you, not on the harp strings, Mm. which means my and capacity to listen and to respond tactilely and audibly bridges so that silence has become generative and creative and new. So for me, words like ensouled are real terms. They're even, they're, they're the deepest terms we have to be inspirited and ensouled and, mm-hmm. and embodied. To me, what I learn from scriptures are, and life and life, not just scripture, we are beings of body, soul and spirit. And so I hope to be with you musically and in silence, in body, soul, and spirit. Uh, whether I'm on stage at Carnegie Hall or in the intensive care unit at Sloan Kettering. Hmm. Does,
2: yeah, does that help? That's a very, bit? yeah, that helps. I mean, this is a very big topic, but that begins to get at it. I thank you, that's profoundly beautiful.
0: Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence.
1: I'm really struck by this accompanying the person in this way of sound and silence amid a place so busy and chaotic and noisy oh, yeah. Yeah. being and yeah. buzzing and families in and out. And I'm, I'm also struck by the fact that it seems to, at least in my life, often be one of the senses that we don't tend to when someone is, sick, or ill, or dying. It seems to me that, you know, for instance, I remember when I've had family in the hospital, I go to touch, and I, you know, massage feet, or hands, and hold hands, and, and go to physical things, or we want to fill the room with our chatter, um, and memories. But this this tending to this silence and sound feels different. It feels like it's more than just one of the five senses, so to speak, as, as Kevin was saying, this embodiment, it's, it's, or this ensoulment, this uh, ensouled experience, as you say. And I also want to say that it's a a lot of times the things we do when we're with someone, it's out of the anxiety of the great silence of the unknown situation.
3: Oh, now you're really on to, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm thinking Just factually, the late 20th century and 21st century practice of medicine is actually biomedicine, and the biomedicine is a technological delivery of medicine. It's larger than life, uh, machine to human, and I would never... Be dismissive about the great advances of medicine. We have to be grateful for them, but those technological deliveries can be intimidating. And sterile isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but uh, but they are hardened, as you say. The beeping, hissing, pumping—they're mechanical sounds, and. The praxis of music thanatology really is about or includes, incorporates, integrates, makes palpable intimacy and reverence, not in terms of a religious institution, but reverence for the human to human encounter that great sacred I-Thou encounter, which is so intimate mm-hmm. that it makes room for the presence of the third. That's where a new mysterious current comes in. And so it even affects, shapes, guides the quality of music that is being created to accompany the one who is now imminent and actively dying. So I'm remembering suddenly, uh, remember years ago reading uh, Schumacher and uh, Small is Beautiful. He tried to remind us to um, go back and revisit and remember uh, things that were human scale. And if we could recover human scale activities in our architecture, in our, uh, in, in every way possible, in businesses and so forth, um, that we would reanimate human meaning, creativity, relationship, uh, health, and more in ways that are almost immeasurable. I'm sorry, I'm using hyperbole here right now, but we regain intimacy. My impression of the world right now is the increasing dominance of an entirely technological world has changed the way we use the word and understand the word culture. So we have mm. theological cultures, we have family cultures, we have medical cultures, we have academic cultures, we have cultures of all kind. But technological deliveries, in technological deliveries, we become faceless, nameless, impersonal, replaceable data. In relationship, the I, thou, irreplaceable human... Uniqueness and intimacy is possible because it's mediated by something larger than just I and thou. There's even a third element present. And so it changes the dynamic from polarized male-female, right-wrong, Democrat-Republican, up-down. It changes those dualities into uh, trinities, and mm. so and so, it's no longer just me and thee. It there's a presence of the third as well. Mm-hmm. So something entirely new, that's larger than you and larger than me, comes in, and guides and shapes and colors, and in many ways helps sanctify and magnify all that is new while we are actively dying to every part of us that is now become unfruitful or deadwood.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I have to start with pruning myself rather than pruning anybody else. And that's where I begin every single day in silence. That silence, the encounter of silence, helps me be reflective and reflexive and helps support the process of metanoia and kenosis. I have got to practice inner emptiness in order to listen and respond to you, to life, to beings, to events, to conditions.
0: Therese, this is such a rich conversation and a thought that just crossed my mind as I was listening to you speak is that it, it is so evident to me that you are speaking of your life vocation, that, that there's, there's such a, a depth and a knowledge and an intentionality to what you are sharing with us. And so I'm going to maybe... Just take a step back. And, and, and I hope this isn't too personal of a question, but I would love to hear a little bit about how you came to discover. And, and I hope the word ministry is not an inappropriate word. I, I know you work in a clinical context, but it's certainly, there's certainly a, a rich contemplative dimension. I think you spoke to that yourself of what you do. So I'm curious as to how you discovered this. How, how did you find this calling?
3: When I step back and I'm able to view the arc of my own life, I'm able to see that becoming and dying and becoming were always a single continuum they were never separated out as separate parts of the village or separate rooms in your house. They were always part of life. And so if you let go of one thing or one possibility or one choice, you were dying in a small way to something little. When you were a child, It might have been something as simple as wanting to get your way, wanting that toy when your brother or sister wanted it. Sometimes you give something away. And the praxis of learning letting go was first nature to metanoia. And in my own early adulthood, I took up the praxis of Lectio Divina Uh, To me, that's one of the most fruitful and creative and generative daily spiritual praxis. So that was a sort of the soil that uh, Eucharist and Lexio were the kinds of soil of my life. But then early in adulthood, I had a situation happen out of the blue where something unexpected happened, where a man died in my arms. And there, there was no big advanced training or education for this. Uh, there was life. And there was our life of prayer and reflection. And I suddenly realized in these moments when the man was dying, He was terrified, absolutely terrified. His lungs had burst, he was dying of emphysema, and he was drowning in his own fluids, and the only thing I could do was drop everything. I think this relates to Kevin's question about embodiment. There, I couldn't respond in the abstract or with technique one had to be present and so the only thing i could do was give him my body and my soul i got into bed and held him i was a young woman and several of my women friends were pregnant with their first babies and i was hearing about the lamas supported breath supported birthing situations and i think their experiences were so strong that I hadn't realized it so my head was not working my heart and my body and my soul and spirit were I simply got into bed in midwifery position and held him the way I'd heard happened in the new supported birthing techniques and so I held him until he took his last breath but I also held him and he was emaciated and frail and his little skinny backbones were up against my chest and I sang to him until he died. So he went from being terrified and gasping and grasping to becoming really calm and this is not because something was magic I think it was because he was accompanied, somebody walked with him all the way to the end and one of the most redemptive moments was that in the last minutes of his life he trusted a stranger number one, he reached out number two, he trusted number three i happened to be there and so i would say either life or destiny or the holy spirit or something happened that i had been in that room that moment but i'd had the formation that is possible to know that sometimes you don't have a phd in something it's life itself that asks you to jump in be present be responsive, not with a head abstraction, conceptual, something or other, but with your life, with your lifeblood. That changed my life. That experience changed my life. That was the moment when I began thinking, has music ever been used at the end of life before? If so, how can I integrate both my life as a classically trained concert and recording artist and as this person noticing that all around us and for the rest of our lives, there will be those who are imminent and actively dying. So I, I wanted to walk both, both, in the same way that you have a right hand and a left hand. I wanted to embrace both. And so I think it was very early on I knew I had a vocation as an artist. But it, was, it took a while for me to realize that I had a vocation as a clinician. But bringing the two into harmony was everything. And that took time. That took time. I had to trust time the way it unfolds organically, rather than have a preconceived notion that I should make it through grad school in three years. (laughs) So I have to say that the vision of an interiorized monasticism was everything. That's what helped me bring these sensibilities into the world as a working woman. I hoped that life and vocation And profession were all woven together as a single fabric. That was my hope and prayer. Does that respond to your question?
2: (laughs) Well, I guess my follow-up question would be this. Um, You you speak of trust, Therese, and the trust that you had to that powerful story of, of... trust on that day with a stranger and in the final moments and I'm kind of curious because our culture, everything about our culture is death phobic, we run from it kicking and screaming and there aren't a lot of spaces sadly even in spiritual and religious circles um, there isn't or there isn't often I should say a lot of preparation for this kind of trust and I'm just kind of curious as, if you have any kind of words of hope or encouragement for, for those who are maybe family members who are currently actively dying or, or as each of us turn to this question about trust and death and dying and, and, and fear.
3: Maybe I could defer to a gift, gifts, plural, I received from my parents. Mm. My father used to say, you can do anything, dear, if you love it. Uh, Notice, I try and tell people, he didn't say, you can do X, Y, Z, once you're a big married girl, or you can do X, Y, Z once you get your PhD, or you can have your permission slips once you have had conferred upon you outward authority. He didn't. The love to which he was pointing was embodied and and ensouled and required that one Practice self-knowledge, develop the capacities to be reflexive, and be motivated by love, by trusting the innate wisdom that comes with embodiment and life experience itself. So he was even trying to say that a little child in grammar school already has some wisdom, and and should be able to trust his or her impressions and intentions. And sometimes the world in which we live today encourages the opposite. (laughs) People are so numbed by excess, by exterior voices, by social scripts, that they perhaps have doubted themselves but so somehow parenting that my father said if you you can do anything if you love it and so i love and loved music but also being eucharist eucharistic i i i was raised in the imagination of both the death and the resurrection. They were all part of my consciousness. So if you love it, you can do anything. And then there was another gift that I received from my mother. And that was, I uh, i didn't do so well in one or two areas when I was a child in school. And uh, I probably came home terrified that I was going to get in trouble for a bad grade. And My mother looked me straight in the eye and said, "Um, did you do what you could, dear? Did you do the best that you could? I think she knew I didn't have it in me to lie. So I looked at her and said, yeah, mom, I really did. And she said, that's all anyone can ever ask of you. So in that moment, I no longer felt ashamed of getting a bad grade on that on that test, and that somehow gave me the strength and the courage to go back and do more and and do better. And by hook or by crook, I learned how to love the difficult subjects. But it was having somebody believe in you. Perhaps that intimacy is what can help cultivate trust and love as the what's, as the antidote to fear. And anxiety and disillusion and hardness of heart, inflation, arrogance, all that stuff is part of our lives, but regardless of our formation, if as adults, if we can come back to the love part without that being sentimental... the Real love is embodied love, and soul love. It requires courage. requires risk. Loving is risking. So, all that coming back together seems to me to be very much like music. (laughs) So somehow, music, sacrament, living, breathing, responding, They're all the same fabric.
0: This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccolman.com.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com.
2: I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com.
1: Please visit the
0: podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.